Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And the topic that we're going to talk about in this podcast has been requested repeatedly by listeners, and hopefully you all can stomach a really sad podcast, because the story of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping really doesn't have any upbeat moments to speak of. It involves the kidnapping of 20-month-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. from his home near Hopewell, New Jersey, in what was called the crime of the century. Yeah, and it really is tragic, not just because of the kidnapping of a small child, but the baby was not found alive. And in the end, a guy was convicted and executed for the crime, but there's still some uncertainty hanging around the whole thing. And that's probably why people are still interested in it today, because the guy never confessed to the crime, even though he was killed for it. That's right. And it also spread fear and grief all across the nation as people identified with and really mourned for the two parents. And they were celebrated aviator Charles Lindbergh, of course, and his wife, Anne. And their notoriety really made the trial interesting, too, because it was an early example of a major celebrity trial that consumed the public's attention during the time. And you often see it compared to another trial that I think most people will be familiar with. I hope so, at least. Otherwise, I'll feel really, really old. Um, and that's the O.J. Simpson trial, um, just in terms of the amount of public interest that it generated. So you can tell by that comparison that it's definitely among one of the most famous trials of the century. Yeah, it is one of the crimes of the century. It's hard to pick just one. We were talking about that when we were titling this podcast, actually. They're, they're ironically several crimes of the century, but this is up there. So we're going to take a look at the kidnapping, the investigation, the trial, and then try to understand why it counted as a as a crime, a possible crime of the century, too, why it captivated people so much. But before we get into that, we need to talk a little bit about Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator. Yeah, absolutely. He was famous for making the first solo flight across the Atlantic from New York to Paris on May 20th and 21st in 1927. And he did this to compete for a $25,000 prize that was offered to whoever could pull this great feat off. And he made the flight in 33.5 hours on this tiny silver monoplane called the Spirit of St. Louis. And pretty much from the moment he landed in Paris, he was an immediate celebrity. I mean, that's the part, I guess, that's really significant to our story here is that he became uber famous in that moment. And some people even refer to him as a hero, a folk hero at the young age of 25. But Lindbergh really was an aviator. That's the kind of thing he was interested in, flying planes. He was not out looking to be a super famous celebrity like he became, became, and he was really quite uncomfortable with a lot of the trappings of celebrity. He was uncomfortable being in the limelight, and that's partly because he was just kind of a regular guy, at least before he made that amazing transatlantic trip. He was born in Detroit on February 4th, 1902, and he spent most of his childhood in Little Falls, Minnesota, in Washington, D.C. He went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, but left during his second year of college because he did really want to fly and went to flight school and studied aviation after that. And before he made that famous transatlantic flight, he had just been working as an airmail pilot flying between St. Louis and Chicago. Yeah, but as we said, after he crossed the Atlantic, though, his life totally changed. People started offering him money for speaking engagements and endorsements, so no more flying airmail planes for him. He was 
a star. He was out in the forefront telling a story. He went on a nationwide tour promoting aviation, and it was on a Goodwill tour to Mexico that he met his future wife, Anne Morrow, who at the time was 21 years old, and she was the daughter of the U.S. ambassador there. And they ended up getting married on May 27, 1929, after a pretty short courtship. Yeah, but that really just made him even more famous and pulled her into that fame bubble, too, because after they got married, the couple was just constantly dogged by the media. And it said that sometimes they would wear disguises just so they could venture out in public without getting hassled. Yeah, it was so bad that it even affected the birth of their child. They had their first child, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., on June 22, 1930. And the baby was apparently delivered at home because Anne was so afraid that the hospital wouldn't be private or safe enough for for them to do it there. Yeah, so that's really saying something if you go if you go to that level to to keep your privacy. But they worked on it full time too with their living arrangements even. They lived in this remote isolated spot, 390 acres near Hopewell, New Jersey to to maintain that sense of privacy. And by the time baby Charles was about 20 months old, they were splitting their time between that house on the weekends and Anne's parents' house in Englewood, New Jersey, during the week. So just kind of trying to go back and forth, keep people on their toes, and and be as away from it as much as they could. Definitely. They did change up that pattern, though, on the last weekend of February 1932, and that's kind of where the heart of our story begins. Baby Charles was sick that particular weekend, so they decided to stay at their country home rather than make him travel when he was sick. And they were going to make that work during the week, even though Charles Sr. had to go to New York on business through Tuesday night. So what Anne did is she sent for her baby nurse to come stay with them at their country home, Betty Gow, who was their baby nurse. She was in Inglewood at the time. So she came to where they were. So Tuesday, March 1st is when all the action starts to happen. And we'll just give you a few of the a rundown of the events of that day, I should say. What they remembered happening. What they remembered happening. Um, Baby Charles seemed to be feeling a little better. So at 7.30 p.m., the two women rubbed mentholated lotion on his chest and put him to bed. They then pinned blankets down around him so that they wouldn't come off during the night as he slept. Yeah, and then they both left him to to go to sleep. And Anne went downstairs and Gal went to do some chores around the house. And she went in to check on the baby at about 8 p.m. He was fine. He was asleep. Everything was good. And so she left the room again. Yeah. And then Charles Sr. came home. He rolled up in his car around 8.20, washed his hands in the bathroom next to the nursery, and joined his wife for dinner by 8.35. Now, just as an aside, during dinner, he did recall later hearing something that sounded like someone dropping a wooden box in the kitchen. So he heard something, but otherwise uneventful. Yeah. So nothing much happens for a little bit until Gal looked in on the baby again at 10 p.m., He wasn't there anymore, and the blankets were still pinned down where they should be, but there was no baby in the crib. And so she rushed to check with both parents to see if maybe one of them had had picked him up and taken him somewhere, but they hadn't. So Charles Sr. rushes out into the rain with his rifle, finds a broken ladder outside of the nursery window, and at that point, they call the New Jersey State Police. When the police got there, there were several pieces of evidence on the scene. Thank goodness. I mean, you would want to have something to go by, but some of them were helpful. Some of them weren't. For example, there were footprints leading away from the home and off the property, which had some kind of pattern on them as if someone had covered them up with burlap or something, some sort of material to make the prints seem less distinct. Yeah, exactly. So they knew definitely that someone else had been there, but had no way to really 
track his shoes or anything like that. Yeah, well, and then there was the ladder, too, the broken ladder that Lindbergh Sr. found outside. And it was uniquely designed to be very portable, uh, made of all these odd pieces of wood. So it seemed like a good potential clue. It wasn't just something somebody had bought at the store. The lowest section, though, had been damaged, maybe broken while someone was climbing down the ladder. And that might have been the noise that Charles Sr. heard at dinner. Yep. There was also a nine and a half inch wood handled chisel there. It was probably used to pry the window open. And last but not least, there was a ransom note and it was asking for $50,000 and it offered a lot of clues, not so much for the information it contained, but the way it was written. And we're going to read it to you and then give you a few little extra notes on the strange punctuation and the strange spelling. But here it goes. Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $2,500 in $20 bills, 15000 in $10 bills, and 10000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you were to deliver the money. We warn you for making any ding public or for the police, the child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. So if you look at this note, and you can probably check it out online, you'll see that the positions of the dollar signs are in a weird place. They're after the the figure, after the figure, after the figure rather than before. And the language used in the note pointed to someone who was probably European. I mean, you can tell, uh, as Sarah was reading it, she said gut instead of good. And so the police assumed that it was someone who was of German or Scandinavian descent. Yeah. And so, of course, though, even though the note is saying don't make this public, don't get the police involved, the news of the kidnapping reaches the public immediately and becomes a huge story. There is a manhunt. Everybody is searching for little Charles Lindbergh Jr. And parents with kids about the baby's age even report being stopped on the street by police in question, you know, to find out if this was the kidnapped child. Yeah, so every this is big news. Everybody knows about it. And they receive two more notes from the kidnapper, maybe in reaction to this, I'm not sure, in really quick succession. The first one raised the ransom to $70,000. And if you read that note, you know, he says things like, you weren't supposed to go to the police, you weren't supposed to make this public, now I'm going to have to keep the baby until things quiet down. Um, so he wasn't happy about that attention that they were getting. Yeah, and the Lindberghs were having trouble, though, even though these new notes were coming in, they were having trouble contacting or communicating with the kidnappers. And then something very strange, I mean, definitely unusual happens. An outsider, this random citizen, steps in to help. And it's this guy, Dr. John F. Condon, and he is a semi-retired 72-year-old New York City school teacher and Bronx resident. And he's just kind of this activist sort of guy. He writes into the newspaper frequently, writes letters to the editor at his local paper, the Bronx Home News. And he's he's just the civic advocate of sorts and steps into this super huge news story. Yeah, in a really interesting way. He writes an open letter to kidnappers in the Bronx Home News offering to act as an intermediary in the situation. So what he wants to do or what he's offering to do is to facilitate the transfer of the money and keep the kidnappers identity secret in the process. He also offered to add a thousand dollars of his own cash to ensure the safe return of the Lindbergh baby. And this was published published in the Bronx Home News on March 8th. So 
big a, deal. Yeah, a big development in this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And a still bigger development is the the kidnappers contact him by the next evening. They actually want to keep take him up on this, and they send him a letter. The letter was confirmed to be real because it had the same pattern of interlocking circles on it as the other letters that the Lindberghs received did. So at this point, the family also gives Condon their blessing to act as an intermediary in the situation. So we see like we have a little a plan forming here to get the two sides together. Well, and it seems to pick up the pace of the whole thing right away because Condon had two meetings with the kidnapper and he used the code name Jaffsy, which was kind of a blurring of his initials, John F. Condon. And he used that to communicate with the kidnapper through newspaper columns. The kidnapper identified himself as John and would send notes to Jaffsy to various meeting points. And so at first they meet Jaffsy and John meet at a Bronx cemetery and Jassy tells them that he needs proof before they proceed with any kind of exchanging cash or anything like that. He'd need proof that Charles Jr. was alive. And so March 16th, Jassy receives the baby's PJs in the mail and the kidnappers demand the cash in two weeks. So Seems like something's starting to happen. Yeah, so then they schedule a second meeting. On April 2nd, Jaffsey lets John know that the money is ready. And they end up meeting the kidnapper in yet another cemetery. That seems to be the place that this kidnapper wants kind to meet. ominous. Definitely. And Lindbergh is actually waiting nearby in this situation. He's waiting nearby in a car. And the money transfer does occur. At this point, the kidnapper gives Condon a note telling him that the baby is on a 28-foot boat called the Nelly, located off the coast of Massachusetts sits near Martha's Vineyard. And so, of course, people are dispatched to go and find this boat immediately. Unfortunately, it's never found. Baby Charles, though, was found on May 12, 1932. A man out walking in the woods came across a badly decomposed body of a child about only four miles from Lindbergh's home. And it seemed that the baby had died from a skull fracture, possibly a fracture that occurred on the night of his disappearance. And some people believe that the kidnappers fall, that noise that Lindbergh senior heard while he was eating dinner might have been, might have been the baby. Yeah, so a tragedy for the family for sure, but the story doesn't end there. There was eventually an arrest made, mostly because the money that the kidnapper had received on that day that they made the exchange was primarily gold certificates, and the Treasury Department had recorded the serial numbers on those. So after they couldn't find the boat in March 1932, those serial numbers were released to banks and published in major newspapers everywhere. Yeah, and so eventually... Those gold certificates from the ransom payment started to pop up around the New York area, and so the the police were on to it. But in the meantime, U.S. Congress was passing the Federal Kidnapping Act, which is known as the Lindbergh Law, on June 22, 1932. And sadly, kind of poignantly, that's the day that would have been Charles's second birthday. So the law made kidnapping across state lines a federal crime and um, made it punishable by death at that time. And it took a while, more than two years, but finally investigators did get a break in this case. A service station attendant in New York City recorded the license plate number of a man who had paid with a $10 gold certificate. So they traced the license plate to a Bronx resident, Bruno Hauptmann, and he was a German carpenter who'd entered the U.S. illegally in 1923. He'd married a German waitress named Anna Schufter, had a kid, but in the spring of 1932, suddenly he quit carpentry and started investing in the stock market. So very suspicious. 
Police arrested him on September 19th, 1934, and found a $20 gold certificate in his wallet, so even more suspicious. And there were other incriminating clues as well. Yeah, he had about $12,000 to $13,000 in gold ransom certificates in his garage, so that's pretty suspicious. And then he had these sketches of a ladder that matched the ladder they had found at the Lindbergh home, which, as you remember, was kind of a unique contraption. Yeah, and also concerning that ladder, there also found a missing crossbeam on the attic floor that was actually one of the boards used to build the ladder. And the only tool missing from this carpenter's tool chest was the chisel found at the crime scene. And when investigators took the door trim off his son's closet, they found the former phone number and address of John Condon written there in pencil. So handwriting analysts looked at that scribbled note and looked at Hopman's penmanship in general and determined that it was stylistically consistent with the ransom notes that had been sent by the kidnapper. And then maybe most incriminating, Condon later identified him as John, who he had met in the cemeteries. Yeah, and in his defense, Hauptmann said that he was holding the money for a friend named Isidore Fish, who had returned to Germany in 1933 and had since died. But that really didn't help him at all. He was still indicted for murder in the first degree on October 8, 1934. So Hauptmann's trial began on January 2nd, 1935 in Flemington, New Jersey, and it was really highly publicized, as we talked about in the intro to this podcast. There were hundreds of press, onlookers gathering all around the courthouse as it was going on, and it lasted for more than five weeks with a jury deliberation at the end that lasted for 11 hours. You have to imagine it it was probably pretty hard for them to find a jury in the first place that didn't know about this crime. But ultimately, Hauptmann was found guilty on February 13th, 1935, and he was sentenced to death. And people were so wrapped up in this trial. They were so interested in the case that there were thousands outside the courthouse calling for the death penalty during the deliberation. So pretty intense. Yeah, everyone was outraged at what had happened, and they wanted to see what they felt was a fitting punishment for it. So there was a series of appeals after that. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, but they were ultimately unsuccessful, and Hauptman was executed April 3rd, 1936. But If you remember what we said in the introduction, Houtman himself never confessed to the crime. No, he said that he'd been beaten by the police and forced to produce handwriting samples that matched the ransom notes. So he kept kind of holding to his story up until the end. And there were some people who really believed him. Some people believed, for example, what the defense counsel had argued, that Condon was somehow involved. I mean, there were there were a lot of theories out there, I guess, as to what happened. Like a lot of big trials, everyone seems to have their own theory about what actually happened. But regardless, the Lindbergh family seemed ready, if not to put the whole thing behind them, then at least to get away from all the media attention in this situation that they had been in. Well, and they were concerned about another kidnapping because they did go on to have other children. Absolutely. So they moved to Europe for a while with their son, John, and they didn't return to the U.S. until before World War II. Yeah, there's a Time International article that was written in 1999 by Reeve Lindbergh, who was another one of the the Lindbergh kids. And she talks about growing up, quote, in the studied privacy and anonymity of a Connecticut suburb with its shaded streets and unmarked mailboxes. And how even though she didn't know her brother, she felt his loss in their sort of cloistered childhood. It's a pretty sad, sad note to to end on. But 
Yeah, definitely. And obviously the family, or Charles Lindbergh Sr. at least, kept coming back into the spotlight at various times throughout his life, up until he died in the 70s. But they always kind of sought this private life. And yeah, it's a really sad story. Well, we don't want to leave you on a downer note like that, though. So we have some slightly related, in a more happy way, listener mail. So this message is from Jamie, and she wrote that she's been listening to the podcast for a while, and she is currently traveling around South America with her boyfriend, and they've been, you know, taking lots of pictures and, and seeing the sights. So she wrote in, I just listened to your podcast on Saint Exupery, and although I've never read The Little Prince, I do have an interesting fact to share with you. A few weeks ago, I was hiking in the Southern Andes Mountains near Patagonia, Argentina. The most famous mountain in this region, which is visible from the town itself, is called Fitzroy. The whole series of hills and mountains around it is very rocky, and supposedly Fitzroy itself is one of the top five most difficult rock climbing ascents in the world. Anyways, while on this hike, we came upon a sign that listed the names of the different peaks that we could see from our vista, and one of them is called Saint Exupery. I happened to find a little blurb in my guidebook that explained the seeming coincidence. Saint Exupery supposedly fell in love with the forlorn and desolate landscape in Patagonia during his many flights while stationed there for the private company he worked for. The landscape stuck with him so much that he even included it in his illustrations of the Little Prince. So she she points us to the Little Prince, and you can look at this mountain and compare it to some of the illustrations. They are remarkably similar. Pretty I've cool. got to reread that book. Yeah, and, and focus carefully on the illustrations. So I think that's super cool that um, his geography would influence not only like the desert scene, but the mountains as well. So thank you for sharing, Jamie. So if you'd like to share any of your own travel experiences with us, maybe ones that relate to a former podcast or maybe a future one you'd like us to do, feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or you can look us up on Facebook and we're also on Twitter at Mist in History. We also have several articles relating to flight on our website. One in particular is really interesting. It's what was man's first attempt at flight and you can look that up on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 